Please take your Bibles again. Turn to 1 Corinthians. We are continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of this fascinating book. This book is to give us a lot of trouble, boy, because there's a lot of tough things in this one. But today we've come to chapter 5. And having dealt with the vital issue of maintaining unity in the local church, that's what he dealt with in the first four chapters. Paul now turns to instructing these carnal, immature Corinthian believers on how to restore and maintain holiness in the assembly. Holiness is another mark of an authentic local church. The same way unity is a mark of an authentic local church. Now this is an important point for us to be reminded of as we go through this book of corrections, I call it. Because that's what Paul does. Correct all of the misbehavior of the Corinthian believers. And in doing so, he uses as a basis for the correction the nature of the church. What he is saying is, if you are going to truly reflect what the church is, then this is how you are supposed to live. There was divisions, there was disunity. Strife, clicks in the church. He says, hey, that's contrary to what the church is. The church is one. The church is one. One Savior. One Lord. And if you are going to truly demonstrate what it means to be a part of an authentic church, then there must be unity. Now he moves on to another problem, and this has to do with immorality in the church. But now he focuses on maintaining holiness and how holiness is to be maintained in the church. The idea is if we are going to reflect what an authentic church really is, There must be holiness in the church. See, this is why this book is so convicting. It hits us right where we are failing the most. You see. In other words, Paul is trying to say, this is what you are. Therefore, this is how you're supposed to live. This is what you are. Therefore, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You see. And he is saying here that if divisions and cliques and schisms and immorality exists in a local church, then it is not an authentic local church. It's a church only in name, but not in practice. It is not being what an authentic church is by nature. In fact, in such a condition, It could be a false church, or at best, a hypocritical church. That's what he's teaching. This is why people don't like to go to this book, because it slaps them in the face all the time. So now in chapter 5, he teaches them that a local church that is characterized by unchecked immorality of its members is also a distortion of the true nature of the authentic church of Jesus Christ. Now, in principle, here is the truth he's emphasizing in this chapter. We call it the necessity, not the purpose, the necessity for church discipline. And here is the overall principle that Paul is 
demonstrating in this chapter that we will look at. Because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the local church must function so as to assure the maintenance of his influence. That's influence of the Spirit of God. The power of the Spirit of God and the reflection of the character of the Spirit of God, which is holiness and truth in the life and ministry of the church. The Holy Spirit is holy. If he's a part of the church, there must be holiness. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. If there's going to be a true manifestation of what the church is, then truth must be lived out, not only preached in the local assembly. I want you to notice this is a necessity for church, not the purpose. We can look at the purpose in a few moments, but this is necessity. The necessity for church discipline is to maintain the holiness of the church and the character of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. In other words, because the church is by its very nature holy, then so must the people who make up that church be holy. How many of you have heard of the word holy before? Especially young people. That's a rare word today. You talk about liberality, freedom, not holiness. Church discipline is God's way of assuring that holiness is maintained in the church. It's only unholy, immoral people who refuse such discipline. That's what Paul is going to be emphasizing here. The only people who oppose church discipline are people who are living unholy, undisciplined lives themselves. That's the thrust of this convicting chapter. So let's go through it and squirm in our seats. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even pagans don't do. I am told that the man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. That's quite a sin, isn't it? It's not only shacking up, it's shacking up in an incestuous way. Paul says, even the pagans don't do that. Even the Romans, now, and the Greeks, now, do you want to talk about immoral, filthy lives? Read this, read about that. But in this particular case, now, that doesn't mean that everybody didn't do it, but most of all, they look down upon this sin as something really terrible. But yet, Paul says, I hear from closed people that's what's happening in the church at Corinth. I can hardly believe it. He cannot believe his ears. And it didn't come from them. They asked him a lot of other questions about problems, but not this one. Too ashamed. He heard it from Chloe's people. They wrote him about many other problems as we shall see as we go through the exposition of this book. But they did not mention this one. And you can see why. Paul says, You are even outdoing the pagans who have never heard about Jesus Christ, much less believe in him. You are living worse than an unsaved person of the lowest moral degree. 
Isn't that an indictment? He says, a professed believer is openly, publicly, unknowingly shacking up with his stepmother, committing incest, and the leaders of the church doing nothing about it. That's one of the big problems with this book, by the way, 1 Corinthians. There's no mention of church leaders, elders, or pastors, other than Paul, Paulus, Cephas. And so many Bible scholars wonder if there were any leaders in the church at all. You see, if they were, they certainly were not qualified to be there because they were not doing their jobs. And of course, the Bible teaches, you know, if you're not eldering or pastoring, then you're not an elder or a pastor. This whole idea of elder and pastor emeritus has nothing to do with the Bible. It has to do with an activity, something that you are involved in. But it seems that there were no leadership here. Or if there were, they certainly were not qualified to be leaders. That's one of the big problems with this, as we'll see when we go through dealing with tongues and all of that other stuff. They were the leaders. Is it possible for a church to have leaders, but they don't do anything about sin in the congregation? Yes, it is, unfortunately. It's because of the view of the church, a club, social institution, a lodge, something that people go just to feel good. You're going to see as we go to this chapter, Paul does not look at the church of Jesus Christ in that fashion. Now Paul is hopping mad about this state of affairs. The assembly was in a total mess. How did they get into this condition, in this state? Even with the teaching of the apostle Paul and Barnabas and Apollos and Peter. How could the leaders allow this to happen and to go on without doing anything about it? Paul cannot believe it. Listen to his words as he responds to the immature, fleshly behavior of the Corinthians in verse 2. You are so proud of yourselves. Remember, that's one of the problems, that's one of the reasons for the divisions, pride. Now it shows where it impacts other aspects of the church as well. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. You're so proud of yourselves. This is raw disgust on the part of the apostle. He's saying your fleshly pride is showing again. You see, they were probably boasting, boy, you know something? We are really loving people. We are loving people. Because we allow people to come to church no matter what they do. And we allow them to minister no matter how sinful their life may be. Aren't we loving? We're not legalistic. We're not legalistic. We're loving, man. We're liberal. We are all open to everybody. Everybody is welcome. We don't care who you are or what you do. They were actually boasting in their failure to maintain holiness in the church. You are arrogant, Paul says, when you should be humble. You are boasting when you should be mourning. You are proud as peacocks when you should be hiding in shame. You're doing 
exactly the opposite of what you should be doing, but more importantly, you are doing exactly opposite of what you are. You are not being what you are. You are a part of the holy body of Christ. But you are, but you are being an unholy, immoral congregation. You are not being what you are. Here's what you need to do to show what you are. Excommunicate. The New Living Translation says, throw out. King James says, remove this unrepentant sinner from the church. Now that's kind of an unloving thing to do then. But you see, you've got to see sin the way God sees sin. And that's what Paul is doing. When last have you seen this happen to a member of the church who is shacking up with someone who is not his wife or not her husband? When last? They're afraid to do that, man. We can lose our numbers. They can go somewhere else. Paul is saying that in order for the church to be holy as it is holy in nature, it must deal with anything that disturbs or mars the holiness of the church. And they must deal with it the way God deals with sin. How does God deal with sin? Quickly and decisively. He reacts immediately. If we don't do that, this is the implication, we're not a true church. Because we're not being what we are, the hypocritical. Now he goes on to explain why this is to be done. Look at verse 3. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in the spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit. And so will the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, these are some powerful words here. We don't often appreciate or understand concerning the nature of the church. Paul is speaking here officially as a called, authoritative, appointed apostle of the church. One who is specially and specifically designated as an apostle to the Gentiles and the main communicator of the truths relative to the church of Jesus Christ. Paul, in other words here, is pulling out his authority. He said, now you've got to listen to me here. I was designated as an apostle of the revealer of the truths of the church. Now you listen to me because I'm speaking on the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying, knowing the facts about your condition in Corinth, I have come to a conclusion on the issue as an apostle. And on the basis of the authority given to me by Jesus Christ, here's what you must do. This is no suggestion. Here's what you must do. 
if you are going to maintain holiness and an order in the church. One, call a meeting. That's important. We don't like meetings. Call a meeting of the church members on my authority to deal with the matter. When you do so, not only will I be there with you in spirit, but so will the Holy Spirit be there, and so will the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he says, you will be operating under his power and under his authority as the head of the church. But notice, you've got to call to gather the church. This is not something the elders or the pastors do in the secrecy of the office. Because that's not where the power and the authority in the church really lays. It lays within the congregation. Yes, represented to the elders, the pastors, but it really rests with the congregation coming together. Paul is not pulling bunches here. He's showing the importance and the solemnity of such a gathering to administer discipline on an unrepentant sinning believer. We don't like to talk about this. But it's in the Bible, and that's why we're preaching it. Notice, again I say, it's not to be done secretly. That's not the way to deal with the public sin of a church member. Paul says it must be done at a specially called meeting of the entire church. That's when and where the power and authority of Jesus Christ is manifested and properly exercised. And friends, we must not lose sight of that fact. Now, you think it's easy to do? When I was in pastoring at the church in Racine, Wisconsin, the church had to take out liability insurance on me because of my counseling ministry. It's quite extensive over there. You see over there, if you take a church member and call out their sin, brother so-and-so is an adulterer. He's been chacking up with the wife of a choir member or the choir member himself or the Sunday school teacher or whatever it is. He wouldn't repent. He counseled him. He wouldn't repent. Now we got to put them on the church. You know what the church member does? Sue. Defamation of character. And so when I was there, this liability for Christian counselors and pastors was a new thing. It just started to come out. That's why you don't have too much church discipline in the United States. I don't know why you don't have it here, other than disobedience. But this is what Paul is saying to do. See, this is where it takes courage, boldness, and conviction that this is what God wants to be done, and it must be done if you're going to be faithful. So when properly gathered and things are done according to the word of God, the church is actually and in reality acting in the name of and not only under but with the authority and power of Jesus Christ himself. That's an awesome thought. You see, we don't look at the church in that fashion. The church is just a 
another meeting, another club. God doesn't look at it that way. Not the true church, not the authentic church. And very few believers look at it this way. That's why everybody could run around from one church to another. They have no idea, no sense of what it means to be in fellowship with the people. You're going to see it here. Most think of the church as just a mere human institution. Paul shatters that image, a way of thinking in this passage. He's saying that an authentically gathered and functioning local church is not only a temporal and physical manifestation of the power and authority of Jesus Christ, it is also a place of spiritual protection from the devil. Listen carefully now. I don't think anybody look at the church like that. Listen carefully to what it says. Verse 5. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. These are solemn words. Very few Christians look at it. Now, Please listen carefully. And I look at the word. Look at your Bible. This is an amazing, awesome, solemn passage. Notice what he says. Then, when? After you have gathered in the name of Christ with his authority and with his power as the head of the church. Then, and only then, power doesn't lay with me or Pastor Arnold or Aubrey or the man alone when it comes to this kind of a thing. No, no, no. Now, there are some that are not public. That's, that's a different story, but not this one. It lies in, with the church gathered. Now, notice what he says. Then, after these things have been done in the name and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, then, then what? You should consider excommunicating him. Mm-mm. You know, consideration, all our consideration has been done. This is what he called a divine must. You must throw him out. You must. If you are going to be a genuine, authentic church, you must. You must. You must throw the man out. Why? To hand him over. To whom? Not to the counselors, not to Sandlins, to hand them over to the devil. Now, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. I'm not making this up. I didn't write this last night to scare you all. Friends, this isn't fairy tales here. This isn't sci-fi here. This is the church acting on behalf of Jesus Christ to maintain holiness in its congregation, in its ranks. Throw him out is another way of saying excommunicate him. Put him out of the church. Now as we shall see, because I'm going to be speaking on this next week as well to show you more aspects of discipline. But as we shall see, this is the last and most extreme step in church discipline. This is when everything else has failed. This is something that has only been done after all other means of trying to win the sinning Christian back into fellowship with God and his people. However, everything else having been failed, 
The rebellious sinner goes on and will not hear the correction of the leaders or even God's people fail to repent. And this unrepented sinner involved in immorality, refusing to accept the counseling of the leaders of the church or the church members themselves, is to be put out of the fellowship of the body of Christ so that the devil could get at him. That's what it says. Why? Why does God want to put an unrepenter, immoral person into the hands of the devil? If I was God, I wouldn't do that. I'd do nice. That's what you're thinking, isn't it? That's a harsh thing to do, meaning that you are not as harsh as God is. You're a little bit more caring. But God says, put him out so that the devil could get him. Now, I want you to see the implications of this and the importance of the nature of the church. Listen again to these chilling words. This is how the NLT translates it, and I'm going to show you why I don't agree with this one. So that his sinful nature will be destroyed. Now, listen to this important part here. He himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. The King James puts it this way. Deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, this short sentence here is jam-packed with spiritual truth that we often neglect. But this is a difficult passage to understand precisely. To be able to say with complete absoluteness that this is what the passage says for certain is very difficult. Bible scholars are still debating the actual meaning of this passage. But before looking at in more detail so we could come up with our own understanding of it, let's get some of the implications here. Because plenty of implications here of the church. You're going to see an aspect of the church that you probably never thought about or if you have forgotten. Here's some implications of what Paul is saying here. First, there is spiritual protection from Satan within the fellowship of God's people. That's why you got to be put outside so Satan can get them. In other words, when you are in fellowship with the people of God and when you are in fellowship with God, you have some sort of a hedge put around you from the devil. Otherwise, you would not be put out. Isn't that right? See, there's a hedge, there's a protection that God puts around his people who are in fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Holy Spirit and fellowship with Jesus Christ and fellowship with the Father. There's a hedge placed around believers. That's why when people say, man, I ain't got to go to church service to worship. I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. That's total ignorance of biblical truth. Oh, I could worship anywhere. I could worship on the boat. I could worship here. I could worship in my house on the boat. I could worship here. They don't understand this truth of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. So one, there's a spiritual protection from Satan within the fellowship of God's people. Number two, Satan is in fact seeking those in the local church whom he may be devour. But God says you can only go so far. Remember Job? Same truth. 
When it comes to the people within the fellowship of God's people, fellowship with one another, with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus Christ and the Father, listen, you can only go so far. And you cannot do anything unless I give you the permission. Number three, outside the fellowship of the local church, the believer is at the mercy of the devil. That's what Paul teaches here. That's why he's being put outside. Because inside, the devil can't get him. Outside, he's fair game. You ever thought of a church like that? You ever thought that as long as you are in fellowship with the people of God, God protects you from the evil one? Think about it. Most of the time people get into real gross sin is because they're not in fellowship with God's people. People who are fellowshipping with God's people, reading the scriptures, studying the word, fellowshipping together, loving one another, caring for one another. Not that they don't fall into sin, but not me. You look at it, study it. Number four. God uses the devil to chastise and discipline sinning believers. This is what some of the prophets had problems with. God used the wicked nation of, of Babylon to come and to chastise his people. And the prophet is saying, God, you, you can't be doing this. How can you use these wicked people to come to chastise us? And God continually, continually does that today. He allows the devil to whip his children for him on his behalf. Do you like that? Probably not. Too bad. It's true anyway. Even Paul had that. Remember when he's carried into the third heaven, saw all these beautiful things. The Bible says in one place God sent a thorn in the flesh. The other passage says it was a messenger from Satan. Isn't that right? God uses it, Satan, to keep his people in check. Number five. And this is what we can talk about next week, Lord. The ultimate purpose of discipline is to restore the sinning Christian back into fellowship with God and his people. It's not to punish them. It's not to destroy them. It's to save them. It's to bring them back into fellowship. That's the purpose. The purpose is to restore. The necessity for discipline is to maintain holiness. These are powerful reasons for being active members of a local church and living a holy life in the fellowship of the people of God. It can save you a lot of headaches. And it can save you a lot of fighting the devil too. Some people say, boy, the church, I ain't like them people. I, I, my unsaved family is more loving, more kind. But your unsaved family or your unsaved friends cannot protect you from the devil. But your Christian friends can. That's what this passage teaches. The severity now of the excommunication for fellowship of the local church is described by Paul as handing him over to Satan so that the sinful nature will be destroyed. He himself will be saved on the day of the Lord or when he returns. And as I said, the King James says, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Notice one says, Sinful nature. The other one says the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, Paul uses this same expression 
in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. This is what he says in that passage, 1 Timothy 1.20. Among them, these are people who speak false doctrine. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander, notice, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Paul said he did it already. To two people teaching false doctrine. I have handed them over to Satan to teach them. Now who's doing the teaching? Satan. Teach them not to blaspheme. How is Satan teaching him not to blaspheme? By beating up on him? Say, what you're doing is wrong. Is he putting it up? No, no, no. He's just beating up on him. But the only reason why he's being beaten up is because Paul has handed them over to the devil. But what does it mean? What are the physical, spiritual consequences of being excluded from the fellowship of the local assembly for immorality? Now we've already alluded to the fact that it means deliverance to Satan in the sense that the spiritual protection or hedge, if you like, will be removed and Satan will be able to have full access to the sinning believer, as in the case of Job. But now, we, in the case Job, uh, there are certain things he couldn't touch. He couldn't touch his life. Everything else was fair game. He couldn't touch his life. But some believe here that actually the devil could kill this person. That's why there's such a battle with this passage. Now this phrase, the destruction of his flesh, has three major interpretations. Let me give them to you, because we're here to understand what God is saying. Number one, some say it means the death of the offender. In other words, the offender would not repent and so on, so the only thing left for him is for him to die, but rather than God himself killing that person, taking his life, the devil will do it. Another view is the destruction, it means the destruction or conquering of the lust of the lower nature. That's why the NLT says the sinful nature. The third, that some severe physical affliction will be experienced by the person put out of the assembly. Now, let's look at them briefly. The first one, the death of this offender, seems improbable to me for the simple fact that it leaves no room for the salvation of the person's spirit and being experienced of fellowship with God's people. So I don't think that's the one. I'll give you another reason in a moment. But let me give it to you now. I don't believe that God will allow anybody, especially Satan, to kill one of his children. I just don't believe that's possible. It's Jesus Christ who has the keys of life or death, not devil. So I don't believe that one. Secondly, I believe this is even more probable because, listen, why would the devil destroy my sinful nature? That's what he wants to enhance. That's the reason why I go with number three. I believe he's talking about some physical problem that this person will experience. And I believe this because it's in keeping with what Paul teaches otherwise, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he talks about the Lord's Supper and talking about judgment upon those who do not examine themselves properly. Remember in verse 30 it says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That's God at work. And notice the progress. Many are weak. One step further, if there's no repentance, you become sick. 
One step further, if there's no repentance, God takes you away. And this is taught elsewhere. We'll see next time when we get into it. But in the case here now of this incestuous person at Corinth, and Hymenius and Alexander, the discipline was intended for spiritual gain so that the offender would be ultimately brought back into the fellowship of God's people. Therefore, what I'm saying, it is not the necessary consequence uh, of someone being physically hurt because that's communication. It's all up to the good pleasure of God. We hand them over and God takes over from that point. That's how I see the teaching of the word of God. The final thing that the church can do is to excommunicate the person after everything else has been attended. Then once that is done, God himself would administer the judgment, not the church. And so Paul then, as a good teacher, proceeds to explain why the excommunication of an unrepentant sinner is so vital to the spiritual welfare of the church. Listen, verse 6. Your boasting about this is terrible, he says. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing that wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast. Notice now, which is what you really are. He's simply saying, be what you are. He scolds them then for his arrogance. It's terrible, implying you should be ashamed of yourselves. This behavior is not in keeping with the people of God who has the Holy Spirit in them, and it is contrary to the nature of the church. What the church is. Don't you realize how sin works? Just a little bit, if unchecked, can spread rapidly through the entire church. Unconfessed, unrepented of sin can contaminate the whole body if you don't cut it out. It's like cancer. The doctor takes an x-ray, sees a little pin prick on the lung. That's all. Oh, that's nothing there. Leave it. That little pin prick is cancerous. And before you know it, it spreads through the whole body and destroys the life of the individual. You know what I'm talking about. You probably experience in your own family. That's like sin. Now that doctor had gone in there and cut it out. Although it might have hurt and pain, it could have saved the life. That's exactly what Paul is teaching here. If the leaders of the church allow known sin to continue in a body and does nothing about it, the entire body will soon be afflicted. And not only the one person will be sick, the entire body will be sick. That's what he's teaching. Therefore, he says, you must, you must cut it out. The only way the contamination can be stopped is by removing the offending ingredient. 
the sinning, unrepentant believer. When you do this, it will be like starting the whole body over anew again. You will be what you really are. You will be a holy people reflecting the nature of the church. It's like an entire church being born again. Again. That's what he's saying. Look at it. You will start with a clean slate if you just get rid of that sinning member who refuses to repent. Don't talk about love. I'm too kind and gracious and compassionate. No, no. Either we're going to obey the word of God or we're going to get away from him. And the church will not be the church if we go our way and not God's way. That's what Paul is saying. This is how one commentator puts it. Quote, God sees them in Christ as holy, righteous, and pure. Now the apostle is saying that their state should correspond with their standing. As to position, they were unleavened. Now as to their practice, they should also be unleavened. Their natures should correspond with their name and their conduct with their creed. To put it simply, as Christians, as a local church, we are to be what we are. A holy church. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Living now to glorify Him by living holy lives. We can talk about that next week. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Take a few moments of quiet reflection. Has God said anything to you this morning from His Word? Not from me, but from His Word. Is there any sin in your life right now that you know needs to be cleansed? It begins with you before it goes anywhere else. If you confess now, it stops there. If you don't, then perhaps other believers or the church might have to step in. And if we don't do anything about it, the whole church could be affected. Is there a sin in your life that needs to be confessed right now? Then do it right here in the presence of a holy God who says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You are actually outside of the body right now. You are at the mercy of the evil one. By acknowledging that you are a sinner, that Christ died for you on the cross to bear your penalty, and that God raised him from the dead to validate that fact, and right now, if you trust him, you can be brought in to the fellowship of God's people and protected from the evil one. Right now. Not only for the judgment to come, but from Satan right now. Would you make that decision to receive Christ this morning? Do so right now. And then let one of the pastors or one of your friends know that you've done it. Father, thank you for your word. The hard words, but they are your words. Help us to accept it. May the seed of your word find good soil in our hearts. And all of God's people said, Amen.